I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Best Bottoms Queers, the High School Comedy Edition. It's Wednesday, September 6th, 2023. On today's show, Bottoms is the gonzoest high school comedy maybe ever about two lesbian teens who, to push back against the tyranny of the jocks, start a fight club. It stars Ayo Adebri and Rachel Sennett. Uh, Sennett also co-wrote the film, we should say. For that segment, we'll be joined by Slate's own Christina Cotarucci. And then HBO has a new docuseries, Telemarketers. It's a wild expose of maybe the shadiest, least well-regulated industry in America. It's hard to describe briefly, but for now, let's just say it's a triumph of guerrilla filmmaking, in my estimation. And finally, Colbert, Fallon, Kimmel, Myers, and Oliver, the big five late-night hosts, are making a podcast together in support of their striking writers. It's called Strike Force 5. Joining me today is Dana Stevens, the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. And uh, Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hey there. For our first segment, I should say, you'll be sitting out for our segment on Bottoms. We'll be joined instead by Christina Cotarucci, Slate senior writer and host of the Outward podcast. Christina, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, Bottoms is the new feature film from the writer-director Emma Seligman. Her previous movie was Shiva Baby. This one is about PJ and Josie, two high school friends, both gay, each with a crush on a different cheerleader, but more or less reviled by their high school as antisocial weirdos. A rumor even starts up, and the two of them fan it that they spent last summer in juvie, where they may or may not have killed a girl. That's juvenile detention. This gives them precious social cachet they've been lacking, with which they then start a quote-unquote self-defense class. It's really more like a fight club. Much comedy and much mayhem ensues. The movie, as I said, is directed by Emma Seligman. It's co-written with the star Rachel Sennett. It also stars Ayo Adebri. In the clip we're about to hear, our two main characters are discussing their idea to start the fight club. Let's listen. I can't believe they're letting you guys start a fight club. No, they're they're not. We are not. What are you talking about? We're going to do it. We're doing it. PJ, I wasn't being serious. Josie, did you see the way that Isabel and Brittany were looking at us? <sighs> also, you heard the announcements. Girls are terrified. It's perfect. They need this. Okay, no. They need, like, mace, maybe. We can't do that, okay? We'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. You're missing the point. I don't really think I am. We don't know how to fight. Dana, let's let's start with you. What'd you make of this movie? It's pretty wild, right? Yeah, wild is definitely the word. It's tonally all over the place. And, uh, and the audience that I saw it with went crazy and absolutely loved it. While I sat there with a film critic friend, not really laughing <laughs> at this movie. And I feel sort of like I want to be in on the joke and I want to have a great time and consider Bottoms this wild ride that we've all been waiting for. And the kind of critical consensus on this movie seems to be like, there's never been a high school movie like it. And, you know, it's doing these incredibly subversive and bold things. And I guess this movie to me felt like a kind of near miss where some of the jokes worked, some didn't. I didn't understand the tone that it was going for and the mix of black comedy and satire and whatever else it was trying to do. And I was kind of disappointed by it. So I wish in a way you hadn't started with me, Steve, because I, I, want, to, I want to start with some sense of enthusiasm about this movie because that is what it's provoking in audiences. And that's great. Um, it's got some great performances in it. Uh, I, I think it's it's definitely features the sort of, you know, coming crop of young female comedians. But honestly, my favorite performance in it, and this is, I guess, an unfeminist thing to say, was by a man. It was Marshawn Lynch, the former uh, football star and um, very, very funny improviser who apparently made up almost all of his lines in the movie and was, you know, really big on improvising on set. There's individual moments in this movie that made me laugh, including some lines in that clip we just heard. And I don't want to spoil anything by talking about the stuff that didn't land, but I I kind of think the entire last third of the movie didn't really make any sense. I don't know. Come to my rescue or, or, or put me in my place. Someone, please. Christina. Well, I hate to disappoint you, Dana, but um, I had a really similar reaction. And actually, among my circle of friends, um, only a few of which have really seen Bottoms, but 
I don't actually know of many people who had that sort of unreserved enthusiasm about it that I think we were all sort of hoping to feel, um, in part because, uh, just to speak for myself, like, I really love the stars. I, I was really excited about Emma Seligman. This movie had a lot of buzz around it. Um, I love to see how people do queer takes on, you know, sort of beloved genres that we all grew up with. And I did laugh, I guess, a fair amount during the movie. But half of those laughs were just sort of like shocked laughs um, when the jokes verged on um, risky territory. There were plenty of jokes about sexual violence, which I thought about half of them landed and half of them just seemed uh, like they were there for shock value. Um, I felt like I wanted it to say more about queerness and how the experience of being a queer teen differs from being a straight teen. Um, I think it, it had some potential to talk about how being a queer teen and dealing with, um, you know, like homophobia on top of all of the, of the other stuff that teens deal with would affect like the way you approach sexuality and the way you approach a first crush. Um, I think there's ways to do that that are really funny. I think Booksmart did that a little bit. Um, but in this film, it seemed to me like the fact that the two leads were lesbians didn't affect much how they related to their crushes or sex. And that to me made was almost as unrealistic uh, in the sort of like heightened unreality of the rest of the film in that like it, it kind of posited that these lesbian teens would relate to sex in the same way as like horny straight teen boys, which in my experience is just not usually the case. Um, I was kind of disappointed that they were just like lusting after like the straight or like putatively straight, conventionally attractive cheerleaders with a kind of glamorized version of an eating disorder. And I wanted a lot more from it than it gave me. Yeah. I, I, first of all, I hate to have a totally consensus built panel discussion. <laughs> it just, it won't be as sparky, uh, especially when discussing a movie with the psychotic brio of this one. But I definitely laughed and I admired that brio um, at some level. But I think finally the layers of irony here are too convoluted for me. Um, I, you know, what precisely was this movie a satire of? I couldn't quite put my finger on it for the reasons Christina was pointing to. Is it about the social violence of high school, the heteronormativity of it? Um, there's something about how, because they're not popular, these two would-be protagonists are somehow unreal to themselves, which has a poignancy to it. Um, but then their medium for overcoming it is is a very stereotypically male form of violence, physical fighting. And that's daring and unexpected, but it's just not clear where the satire is supposed to be cutting. And the other thing that I found strange, with the, which the movie alludes to only ob obliquely, is my sense of high school is that status, yeah, it derives somewhat still from the old norms of being pretty if you're a girl and being a jock and an alpha if you're a boy. But it seems increasingly less true of high school with every micro generation that passes. And there's one I thought very funny joke, which is that um, if you're gay and talented, people love you. You fit in with a now commonly admired high school type in some sense. But if you're gay and untalented, you're still a loser. Um, I just didn't understand. Is this a parable about American rage and how that's the one true medium of selfhood in our culture? It's just, the, the movie's just pervaded, Dana, by this kind of jaundiced sense that envy and revenge are what motivate people. And it never really blinks from that. I think this movie feels more like a first movie than Emma Seligman's first movie, which was Shiva mm. Baby, a movie that I also didn't 100% love, but it is assured. Have you seen it, Christina? It sounds like I thought no. from your, your ascent, perhaps you had seen I, it. No, that was uh, mm, about, I really need to watch that movie because I've heard fantastic things about it. And I agree with you that if I came into this movie not knowing anything about Emma Seligman, I would think, wow, this person got a gigantic budget for their very first sort of unfinished movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Shiva Baby, it might really appeal to you. It is, like I say, it's assured in its tone. It's, you know, much smaller scale than this, obviously. And it's just a kind of intimate story that all takes place at this one Shiva, you know, at a Jewish funeral service. Rachel Sinat, who's one of the leads here, is, is you know, the center of the movie. And 
it feels like, oh, here's somebody who's kicking off an interesting career. You know, this is a very young director who's going to go places. And th- and then her second movie, to me, that it feels like here's a person with tons of ideas who's sort of sloppily throwing paint at a canvas, you know, and some of it is landing in the wrong place. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it's all trying to say. And there's a lot of energy here, but there's not a lot of c- tonal control. And, uh, and maybe some people are really enjoying that very sloppiness about it. But there were some moments where I felt like, and maybe Steve, this is what you were getting at with the this, the word jaundiced, which really struck me. What you just said, I think that this movie, Bottoms, is trying to hit this certain tone. It's trying to walk this line between really black comedy, kind of a la Heather's, right? Well, where high mm-hmm. school could actually be a, a, a zone where real wars and murder are taking place. Like it's pretty much not just implied, but shown that you know some actual deaths occur in the context of um, of, of all of this high school mayhem. And it wants to be this kind of sweet buddy comedy about the two lesbian friends who sort of discover the error of their ways, because this isn't spoiling a lot. It happens early on in the movie, but it's a lie that gets the the fight club started at the school, right? Oh, Steve, you actually did mention this already, that this rumor begins that these two unpopular lesbians have been in juvenile detention over the summer, and they go with the lie. And, you know, with the lie, they create this kind of tough reputation and start the fight club, etc., Um, But people really get hurt as a result of that. And there's a moment that I won't spoil, but there's a moment when a girl in the fight club is badly beaten by a large man at a pep rally, which, first of all, it makes no sense even in the context of this high school universe. Like, is the... it's, it's obvious that there would not be somebody at the end of a pep rally left just bloodied and unconscious on the floor and everyone, including the teachers and coaches, would just file out, I guess, in the world of this movie that's supposed to make sense. But it kind of makes it this morally vacuous universe. Anyway, I thought that that was going to be a moment in the movie where there was sort of a moral touchstone where the two girls who started the fight club would say, oh, wait a minute, you know, we didn't intend for one of the members of our club to be knocked out on the ground, appearing to be possibly needing to be hospitalized, right? But instead, that becomes a moment about their friendship. And the first conversation they have after that is about each other and what's going on with their friendship or something. And at that moment, the movie kind of lost me. I just kind of thought, like, these people don't seem real. They don't seem like they have any moral center. And I'm not going to get invested in what happens to any of them. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the film is clearly more comfortable with showing and joking about violence than it is about sex. Like, they talk pretty explicitly and kind of raunchily about sex and wanting sex, but uh, none of it is very sexy. And I kind of, when I've tried to think, like, what is this movie trying to say, that's the closest I've come to it, which is that, you know, we're all comfortable talking about sex until we actually have it, and then we're kind of like, oh, that was actually a little different than what I thought it was going to be, or, you know... um, after one of the characters finally does have sex, it becomes clear like, oh, maybe she's not as, she doesn't want to joke about it as much or it's changed the way she thought about it and maybe changed the way she thinks about approaching somebody sexually. Um, But I, the more I think about it, the more I actually think the movie just doesn't know how to talk about sex and teen sexuality um, because the universe that it's created is so unrealistic that it's it, it doesn't know like which parts of reality to include and that lack of confidence is in part why we don't really know anything about the two main characters beyond their lives in school we actually learn a little bit more about some of the other bit characters about problems they're having at home and stuff like that which makes them feel more like real people than the two people were actually supposedly supposed to kind of be invested in yeah, Christina, I totally agree. It's, uh, for example, take the Hazel character, the secondary character who appears to have a crush on one of the two leads. They just totally ignore her um, in favor of this covetous attitude towards the cheerleader set. So you have these caustic lead characters who seem to see their world with this kind of horrible clarity for what kind of a Hobbesian universe it is. But the movie itself seems to be satirizing their desires. And that was just one leap too many for me. Yeah, I think the the movie really drove home why so many screenwriters feel drawn to writing about high school and also why so many of us, you know, well into adulthood continue to want to watch it is um, the stakes are 
very clear and we all sort of agree on this power structure that we all understand. And so there's very little explaining or like world building that has to be done because we all know, okay, here are the jocks, here are the cheerleaders, here are the losers. And by the way, everyone's horny. Um, And I think that's, the film didn't really do much to expand upon that or make it feel more real in any unique way. And, And that's why I kind of felt just like hollow to me, even when some of the jokes for me at least did land, um, such that, you know, I left the theater thinking, you know, I didn't waste 90 minutes of my time, but, um, not necessarily a film that I would consider a must see, or even necessarily recommend someone go out of their way to see. Mm. All right. Well, the movie's bottoms, it's out in theaters now. If you check it out and have a strong feeling about it, we'd love to hear it. Shoot us an email. All right, let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast we discuss business. Dana, what do we have this week? Steve, our only piece of business this week is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment, which this week is going to be a conversation about trains and specifically sleeper cars on trains based on a piece that ran in Slate recently by Bryn Stoll about European sleeper car trains and how they're being booked to the gills this season. It was my idea for us to do this uh, train travel segment as our plus because I recently had a great experience on a train myself. So we'll talk about that and other past experiences with train travel, sleeper cars or no, in the plus segment. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned and hear that at the end of this episode. If you're not a Slate Plus member, as always, you can sign up and become one at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your membership dollars, you will get ad-free podcasts. You'll get bonus segments like the one I just described and lots of other Slate podcasts offer them too. And best of all, you will get unlimited access to all of the podcasts and all of the writing on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member And you will also be supporting the magazine and the work of all our brilliant colleagues there. These memberships matter a lot to keep Slate going. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, back to the show. All right. Telemarketers is an HBO docuseries. It's about third-party telemarketers. But this does zero justice to this extraordinary three-part film. It's part first-person diary, part addiction memoir, part guerrilla expose. Sam Lippenstern, who co-directed and narrates the film, was a 14-year-old high school dropout, amazed to discover he could get a job at Civic Development Group, a pioneering telemarketing firm. It was, in fact, a call center filled with total deadbeats, addicts, ex-cons. It was an open-air drug den, just a wild boiler room, ostensibly devoted to raising money for police unions. The scam here was that 90% of the money went to the telemarketer. Uh, And that we come to discover, rather shockingly, that's just the surface layer of rot and corruption here. One that uh, the film implies runs all the way down, all the way out, and all the way up in our society. In addition to Sam Lipman Stern, the film is co-produced and co-directed by Adam Bala Huff. Uh, In the clip you're about to hear, you'll get a sense of the low-budget feel of much of the documentary. You're going to hear a man named Pat Pespis, who ends up in some ways really the hero of the film, listing some of the organizations that he claimed to represent as a telemarketer. You'll also hear the voice of the filmmaker himself, Sam Lipman Stern. Let's listen. You name it, we've called for it. First, it's the volunteer firemen. Then it's the retired firemen. Then it's the fire chiefs. We were getting handed scripts for new organizations almost every day. And some of them just sounded like bootleg versions of existing charities. Fucking the Children's Wish Foundation. Not the Make-A-Wish Foundation, the Children's Wish Foundation. So, Julia, let me let me start with you. I mean, it's just hard to do this documentary justice, though you really have to emphasize that this guy, Pat Pepsis, who at the beginning of the movie is, he's two th- things distinctively in this raw sort of rogue footage that they got while they were working at this company. From inside the company, they filmed all the crazy shit that was going on. And Pepsis emerges from that footage as a really distinctive character. He's a terrible drug addict. He's nodding off, literally nodding off after shooting up at work um, and then making the calls and doing it beautifully. And he's a legendary caller. He's an incredible caller for the company. And over the course of the film, he turns into a Michael Moore-style documentarian on camera, you know, sort of guerrilla journalist. It's it's 
where to even begin, Julia? I'll let you pick where, but doing Pepsis justice, I think, is part of the story we need to weave. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting project, and I think uh, worth our audience's time to watch, in part because it does not fall in the camp of pure, efficient, ruthless muckraking. It's it's a really unusual hybrid of the like raffish character found footage style of documentary and the we're gonna it's we're gonna take this thing all the way to the top expose. <laughs> I'm curious, Dana, if you can think of any forebears for it that I'm missing. I feel like it has some forebears on each side of that line, but it's hard to think of another project that blends them in the same way. And part of what's so poignant and interesting about it is that you know, I mean, the, these scams are ongoing. There was a there was a huge expose in the New York Times in May about robots doing versions of this call by David Fahrenholt. Like, you know, that this has been going on for twenty years, and it's the cynicism of the exploit of kind of shaking down vulnerable callers to quote unquote support quote unquote law enforcement. Persists. So even even as they keep going, you kind of know that the thing is too big for them to really stop. Right. And yet then you also start to realize that the goal of the three part documentary is not necessarily to uh, to be a triumphant expose that stops the practice that it's it's this it's this wonderful documentary about sort of success and failure and what each of those two things mean. Right. The movie that it made me think of when you ask about precedence. Julia is is the movie American movie the the 1999 yeah. um, I guess it's it's a documentary it's a documentary about two aspiring filmmakers and it has a similar feeling of this kind of shambling buddy movie about these kind of dirtbag losers but who who have an impossible ambition that makes them kind of lovable and uh, and that is what this this documentary was to me it, this this succeeded in so many ways that I didn't expect it to for one thing. You know, so many of these multi-part streaming documentaries that we talk about don't need to be multiple parts. And often they're eight or ten hours long when they could have been, you know, two hours long. I feel like this is the correct length and it's divided into the correct number of segments. And I thank Benny Safdie for that, um, the the director who was one of the co-producers of this, who apparently is the one who had the insight when he started looking at the footage and, you know, hearing the story be told as it was in progress, that this should be a three-part streaming documentary. And it somehow works as that perfectly, in part because... Because of, I won't spoil it, but because of, you know, a big time stretch that lapses in between episode two and episode three and a kind of suspenseful twist. And, uh, and it all just comes together so satisfyingly, even though there's also a tremendous amount of frustration and sadness in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the impossibility, as you say, Julia, of solving this, this huge whack-a-mole problem. But yeah, it's especially in an, in an episode of our show when, you know, w- we talked about a movie, Bottoms, that we all wanted to love and didn't. I'm really happy to have a streaming show that I can really pump my fist for. Like, this is both a kind of feel-good documentary in the end with, as Steve says, an incredible yeah. character portrait of this Patrick J. Pespis, just this indelible human being that you will not soon forget after seeing the show. Um but it also becomes, you know, a kind of portrait of a slice of society that we don't often see on streaming documentaries, you know, which is essentially this group of, you know, the the people who work at the Civic Development Group, the CDG, which is this kind of shell company for, you know, basically a, a, a bunch of scammers uh, who are shaking down vulnerable people for their money. And you know, obviously there's nobody you want to dislike more than telemarketers, right? I mean, when a telemarketer calls you, interrupts your dinner, tries to sell you some crappy scandal, you just want to say, aren't you ashamed of your job? Like, how can you be doing this? And you feel so much sympathy for this, the the slice of society that is sort of forced into jobs like telemarketing after seeing the first episode of this show. It's, you know, this combination of drug addicts like Pat Pespis, um, ex-cons, high school dropouts like Sam Littman Stern, who's only 14 when he starts shooting this footage. And it really is this, you know, the, the you cannot believe what happens in this office space. I mean, you're looking at this kind of gray, boxy office space that looks like it should be uh, in the movie office space where only boring corporate things are happening. Instead, it is just this complete carny mayhem. And uh, and so there's there's that side. There's the glimpse into that part of, of society. And then it becomes a buddy comedy and a kind of crazy road trip movie and a kind of Michael Moore style expose. 
And and in the end, really, the, the camera almost pulls out, and I won't talk about how, but, you know, you start to see how big and how rooted in, you know, the very seat of government these, these problems are. And uh, it just becomes, it sort of keeps getting bigger and bigger and wiser and wiser. And I just, I wound up with so much respect for the, the filmmakers and the people behind this documentary for sticking with the crazy dream of getting it made. First of all, I'm so heartened, Dana, that you love this. I loved it unreservedly. I thought it was an weirdest, most incredible tour de force I've seen in years and years. Um, it's very funny. It's very strange. It's really dark. Um, and Julia asked about precedence. I mean, I thought of three right off the top of my head. I mean, Roger and Me, the very original Michael Moore movie, which featured him in front of the camera trying to get an interview repeatedly with the head of GM, effectively just wanting to ask, how do you abandon you know, the city of Flint, Michigan, as heartlessly as pitilessly and totally as you did while you're making this whatever seven eight nine figure salary whatever it was um you know it's a powerfully socialistic movie with a with a really righteous drive behind it as well as this sort of shambling you know star turned by by um, Michael Moore himself, just the unlikeliest movie it reminded me also of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross you know that sort of boiler room yeah tragic comedy you know and it's like julia you just exactly right it's like you get this the feeling of how all of the mechanism all of the superstructure of a wealth extracting society is just plopped down on top of the beings of the people at the very bottom of it attempting to make it work in their favor hopelessly and their humanity is unkillable but it's just on fucking life support and kinds of rapport and and hijinks they get up to just to remind themselves they're not only a cog in this horrible scam is remarkable to watch um and then the other is just i know it's kind of trite but don quixote right like pepsis is sancho panza right right he's just this like i, I mean i guess or sort of a combination of quixote and panza i mean these sort of hapless would-be do-gooders who want to turn the na that narrative around, the Glengarry Glen Ross narrative, around and fully on its head and are willing to knock on any door and, you know, kind of risk anything and everything in order to, to do so, to expose that this is just a gigantic, politically connected, through the policemen's unions, politically connected, blood-sucking scheme. And um, <laughs> the degree to which you get to know uh, Pespis in particular, this cut up drug addict, fuck up, and finally kind of moral superhero, it's just it's just an amazing piece of work. The one thing that this film made me wonder is how many amazing opportunities for documentary storytelling are there in the years to come with just the availability of video technology. You know what I mean? Like this really feels like a product of its moment, right? You have a 14-year-old uh, high school dropout in the in in one of the directors sort of having a suggestion from one of his human colleagues to to start taping basically to post, you know, people scooting around in chairs on YouTube for the likes in the early YouTube economy and it ends up with this wealth of footage that takes on different meaning for him over time. And two things I really love about the footage, one Throughout the documentary, you get to see people making these sales. And as someone who, you know, for all, for all the reasons that I would be, is very good at hanging up the phone on telemarketers. And yes, Dana, I think having maybe less sympathy for the people in those, making those calls than I should. Um, just watching what a sale looks like and how they do it and how actually kind of clever and thoughtful and um, tactical, the sales approaches is really fascinating footage. And then there's an amazing moment in the in the uh, second episode where they really try to pivot those interpersonal skills from scamming to journalism. And it's it doesn't go well <laughs> for a while. And that's interesting, too. You know, because it's mm -hmm. a, it's similar in some way, right? Like trying to get someone on the phone, trying to get something out of them, but the the scripts are not fully baked, and they're and they're less adept at it. And it's it's interesting to think about those pieces of it too. Like just the footage is such a wealth, and then I think what they did with it, 
has all the wisdom you described, Dana, which is what makes this more than a pile of YouTube clips or found footage. But just the portrait of what those sales look like, how transferable those sales are or not. And yeah, just the like hijinks of an office. It's an amazing cocktail. All right. Well, it's called simply Telemarketers. It's on HBO or Max or whatever it's called, but you should seek it out. Absolutely. This thing is a remarkable document of our times and what this country is made of. Please watch it and tell us what you thought. All right, moving on. Okay, well, the uh, WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes have uh, shuttered the late-night TV shows now for several months. The five hosts of those uh, shows, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, and Seth Meyers, have joined together to make a podcast. It's called Strike Force 5. The idea arose out of a uh, weekly Zoom that they'd been doing anyway since, and With the uh, added benefit here that they're going to take the proceeds of the podcast and distribute them to their striking workers. In the clip we're about to hear, they're talking about the last writer strike, which started in 2007, despite what John Oliver's about to say. He gets the date wrong, but they have uh, curious things to say about it. Let's listen. Would it be fair to say that in 2008, the host didn't get along quite as well as we do? I know it's an incredibly low bar, but that was a sequence of dying marriages that they were... (laughs) Yeah. Who them. was who? Who were these people in two thousand and five? It was you, Kimmel, me, uh, Conan, Letterman, Jay Leno. I think Craig Ferguson was yes a late late show at that time. And me and John, and, and you and John uh, on Comedy Central. Yeah, that was it. That was the group. Eventually, Letterman and Ferguson came back before we did, and we were all mad. But how did they come back though? Because they, worldwide pants was its own production company that Dave financed. Then he sold it to CBS as his own studio. And so Dave said, what do you guys want? Sure, you can have that. That's how I understand it in case Dave is listening. If you'd like to come on and correct the record, we'd be honored. If we wanted to make this the strike for six, yeah. Sound effect? No, that's not, that is not the sound effect for strike for six. Okay, Dana, well, this has a raffish conversational charm. I, we hope we're somewhat familiar with on our podcast. Uh, be hard for us to gainsay it. Um, and certainly as a goodwill uh, gesture, it's unimpeachable. I mean, giving the the income from the show such as it is to their striking writers, it's a show of solidarity. Uh, it's filled with a lot of bonhomie. It's, it's amazing depicted as a rivalry often. Um, it doesn't seem like a bitter rivalry in the least. They seem to get along great. What do you make of, of listening to this? It's funny you start out by comparing it to our podcast, because I think my main takeaway from this, honestly, was it made me feel better about our podcast, because I think (laughs) we make a much better one than these guys do, (laughs) which I guess makes sense, because at least we've been podcasting audio-only type content. We've been producing this a lot longer than them, and these guys are used to being on camera and not being behind a mic, but... While I went into this with all goodwill, it's not dissimilar to to how I feel about Bottoms, the movie we talked about this week, where I went in with all goodwill. You know, I I enjoy the idea. I appreciate the the effort to reach out and give support their staffs and draw attention to the strike. But like, really, guys, you couldn't have pulled together something a little more polished than that. I mean, first of all, the literal sound quality on this. I mean, these guys are all millionaires, and they appear to be just recording a Zoom call. <laughs> At least we, when we record remotely, are using high quality sound equipment. There's not any apparent editing. I mean, I suppose that some stuff could be edited out, but it really does just seem to be un formed unfashioned rambling among five talk show hosts. And I think the biggest disappointment to me, honestly, was that there wasn't more content about the strike. I mean, part of why I wanted to talk about it on our show is that I think the biggest thing happening by far in in culture right now, in the U.S. anyway, is the actors and writers strike, right? I mean, it's keeping us from being, you know, having other content to talk about because nothing is being undertaken. And it's going to affect the entire future of the industry and labor and other industries. And it's really important and interesting. And these guys are a big part of the entertainment industry and no doubt have a lot to say about it and inside knowledge about what it's like to have a writer's room and all these things that I would love to know more about. And instead, they're kind of just like trading anecdotes, some of which are funny. I will say that in particular, I think Stephen Colbert and John Oliver, who are also the two of these guys whose shows I would be most likely to watch if I watched any are probably the funniest on their feet and coming up with the best stories and kind of shaping them for the medium the best. 
but none of them are honestly that great at it. And uh, I'm just a little bit surprised after having had this, you know, idea that I think is pretty good and, and this goodwill gesture toward their staffs that they didn't kind of sit down. I guess this is what it is to not have a writer. but <laughs> They didn't sit down and shape what they were doing a little bit more. Mm. Julia, what about you? Guys you guys are such cranks. This is so fun. <laughs> What's oh, wrong with you? Of course, they didn't sit down and talk about the strike for two hours. Like nobody wants to hear about the strike anymore. There's, there, it's at a stalemate. There's nothing new to say. It's, they're stuck until they get out of it, uh, and they really can't. I mean, they're they're not in a position given the nature of their contracts and their roles as like business leaders of these shows that employ all these people to probably be that forthcoming. And I I don't know, that is not what I expected or wanted from this at all. To me, this was like a peak fun voyeurism opportunity and an opportunity to think about like why those Bill Carter books about the late night wars of the 80s and 90s, I guess, were so interesting and juicy. I mean, part of it's because Bill Carter's a great reporter and a great writer and managed to turn this, you know, ultimately sort of meaningless business competition into really fun uh, personality drama. But it's also interesting to think structurally about why the late night hosts might no longer be full of peacockery and enmity, no matter which networks they're working for, didn't mean to signify anything NBC related by that use of peacock. Um, Because they're all under threat. Their whole thing is under threat. People don't, you know, the, the audiences for these shows are declining anyhow. So they the fact that they have more cordiality kind of makes sense. And then it's so interesting to see what kind of brains they are and are not and what works and what doesn't. I mean, it's so you know, of course, Colbert is the erudite ringleader. And of course, John Oliver is full of kind of uh, lacerating non-cooperative jibes. And, um, you know, Jimmy Fallon seems like an absolute airhead who can't even remember what the hell was on his own first show. Like at one point, Colbert recites back to him <laughs> what his whole first show contained. And also, they all sort of like knowingly exchange anecdotes about what a difficult interview De Niro is. And and Fallon tells the story of having triumphantly booked De Niro for his first show, without even quite realizing that he was, um, you know, setting himself up for a very, very difficult opener. Uh, I don't know, just the dynamics is the, the, the voyeurism of the dynamic between them and the unpolishedness of it that allows for that voyeurism is totally the hook of the show. Mm. I mean, it's certainly the second episode where they get into the nitty gritty of the, the, what it's like to do a show and admire each other's practices for which chairs they put the guests in uh, backstage to get them comfortable with whether their skirts are going to look terrible on TV is like much more revealing than the first episode, which is uh, shaggy, perhaps unpalatably shaggy in the way you described, Dana. But I don't know. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I'm only 20 minutes into the second episode, so I will give it another chance. I just wish at least, okay, I will let go of my desire that they talk about anything substantial. I just wish they would at least have a subject per show. What if they said, this week's episode, we're going to talk about, and then they would take, you know, couches or some aspect of being a late night host. That second episode is about first episode, so they kind of do have that. It's about each of them describing like their first episode and the challenges of a first episode. Ah, see, I'm probably host. not far enough into the second episode to have realized it has a topic. And I'm totally willing to go with the shagginess. I just, I believe in there being some sort of form and shape to a conversation so that, you know, the listener just has something to, to cling on to. So I probably should not judge a, a podcast by its first episode. God knows, I'm sure our first one was terrible. <laughs> um, to me, what's really interesting about the late night host phenomenon is that, you know, if you're an actor or uh, another kind of showbiz performer, maybe most relevantly a stand-up comedian, uh, you fuck up, you fall by the wayside, you resurrect yourself, you tidy yourself up, you write a good solid, you know, you're tight 45 on the subject of what you've been doing and you present it to an audience. These guys, these five guys have jobs. They have to show up hundreds of nights a year and hit their mark. And surrounding them is a mammoth apparatus for putting this over on the public as if they are the most charming, delightful, easygoing 
people to hang out with and that the celebs love talking to them and what they say is incredibly witty and, and funny. You know, they're playing not just with one net, but a thousand nets below them. I mean, these are brilliant, talented performers. Don't get me wrong. They is a Darwinian winnowing process that got them to that seat. They deserve to be there. Um, but nonetheless, it's it's what I liked most about it was its many layers of evident humility, one of which is like, we kind of suck without this team around us. They don't seem to really want to hide that. And they're not one-upping each other, which you get a bunch of comedians in a room. It's just awful. It's anytime there's a kind of like, you know, any format that's a bunch of comedians sitting around talking, you realize what a what a hard, nasty way it is to make a living. Um, they love each other, but they also hate each other. Uh, I, I, I thought this was delightful in that sense, but, but yeah. So it's kind of wonderful, but also I would never listen to more of it. I, I'm going to listen to every episode. Uh, your point about cordiality and how odious it usually is when comedians talk to each other and are like all desperate for that attention and used to being the one who can easily command it. And then they get that sort of frantic pawing one-upsmanship and then they lose control of their pit. Like there's none of that here, but there is this quality of like sheathed knives that adds a little bit of like tension and interest, I think. I mean, Stephen Colbert literally tells a story about having punched Jim Belushi on stage, which is, how can you not like this podcast? That's like a crazy fact. What? (laughs) Stephen Colbert? And and they've all, um, they are all extreme pros. They've all been in other forms. And I will say for all that Jimmy Fallon seems like sort of the most checked out and and again it's probably to his credit that he's willing to to demonstrate how unpolished he can sometimes seem if he doesn't have his whole army behind him i will also say he's the person whose show i most frequently watch clips of on instagram or whatever because the apparatus that he's built and that he does lead with whatever his qualities are yeah it's not necessarily like verbal dexterity and witty erudition and anecdotes about Central American dictators, which also feature here. Um, it's like he, what he's able to do on his show is get celebrities to put themselves in vulnerable positions that are more interesting than relaying an anecdote in a sparkly dress. And by making them sing, by making them dance, by making them do skits, like he can cajole them into putting themselves under a microscope in a way that makes for really compelling television. That's very different than like, Oh, we're all invited to the same fun cocktail party. And -and so-and-so is the host. So like, anyway, I don't mean to rag on him, but it's just interesting to think about how they've all come up and how their, how their different skills emerge. And anyway, I will be avidly listening. I, I thought this, I think it's, you know, a worthy, I mean, it's a can't lose proposition for them, I guess, apart from in Dana's esteem, (laughs) but they, you know, they're they're helping their teams. They're chatting. How bad can it be? They're all pretty smart, and you know, they said they're going to do twelve episodes, so they'll they'll be done before it gets too stale, unless they want to go on. But um, I I certainly enjoyed it. All right. Well, it's Strike Force Five. You can find it on your podcast platform. It's the five biggies uh, throwing it around the horn. If you love it, we'd love to hear why. If you hate it, also uh, shoot us an email. All right. Let's uh, let's move on. Ah, right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have this week? Steve, my endorsement this week is a piece I came across in The Guardian this week by an author. She writes for The New Yorker sometimes. She's written one novel I've read that's great, another one that I have not read yet that I plan to. Her name is Elif Batuman. And as far as I know, Elif Batuman is a listener to our podcast. I remember years ago, this was probably seven or eight years ago, Walking down the street, I think I was talking on the phone or talking to a friend, and Elif Batuman recognized my voice from this late culture gab fest and came up behind me and said, hey, I'm a big fan of your show. When we talked on the corner for a minute, she really was a dedicated Slate culture gab fest listener. So I hope she still is, and she is hearing me say, Elif, thank you. I loved your book, The Idiot. I plan to read its sequel, Either Or, which I haven't read yet. And what I'm specifically endorsing this week is a piece that she wrote for The Guardian about ChatGPT. It's really, really funny and gives you a great glimpse into uh, into her sense of humor as an author, as well as just being a really 
great investigation of ChatGPT and its bizarre way of processing and presenting information. It's essentially a conversation almost written in dialogue style between her and ChatGPT based on this experience she had where she was trying to to come across, she was trying to remember a quote in Proust in, in, in Search of Lost Time and was asking ChatGPT, can you help me find this moment when Proust says blah, blah, and she describes very specifically the quote she's looking for and can, proceeds to have this ridiculous conversation with ChatGPT where it keeps presenting her quotes that have nothing to do with what she said and claiming that they do, but she can't tell if the quotes are real or made up. And ChatGPT is not being honest about whether they're actual direct quotes. So she starts asking for the quotes in French and it's giving her more fake quotes. I can't describe how funny it is and also how illustrative it is of just what a frustrating and ultimately um, deceptive tool AI of that sort is. It reminded me of our conversation that we had when the chat GPT tool was first released, where we all played with it and, and talked about our results. Anyway, I mean, mainly just read it because Elif Batuman is so funny and such a good writer. It's called Proust, Chat GPT, and the Case of the Forgotten Quote. It's in The Guardian, and we'll put a link to it on our show page. Oh, yeah. I'm, she's such a wonderful writer, and I'd heard that too, that she was a listener and, and admirer of our show. So cool. Uh, Julia, what do you have? Steve, my endorsement is an endorsement that uh, will have special meaning for you. I'm flinching. So on my vacation, I'm flinching couple, already. Duck and cover. <laughs> well, you know that tone of your back. voice. Is, you can't do Taylor Swift again, Julia. That's a good story. It's not Taylor Swift. I promise you're going to love this. Um, on vacation a couple weeks back, we were heading to a favorite town where we have a couple favorite restaurants, and they were only open certain nights, and we had it all strategized to go to, according to a plan and love to have a plan. And then as we were driving into the town, kind of arriving, not yet at our uh, kind of inn around 6.30, we went past a beautiful clobbered house in the Massachusetts countryside that was packed. It was like everybody pulled up at the church for the dance scene in Footloose. Like it was <laughs> banging. It was like a hopping, happening situation to the point where despite our plan to go and drop off and check in and go to the place, but then one night that it was going to be open, that we were there, we were like, what is that? And we clicked it up and it turned out to be something called Hilltown Hot Pies, which was only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we were there arriving 6.30 Sunday. So we pulled a hard Yui on route whatever we were on and bopped back over and got our pizza orders in. And I was like, this whole vibe sounds like those various pizza brigadoons that Steve is constantly describing in New England. Like, I feel like there's like four of them that you like. And so I texted you as we were arriving, like, Steve, what's the name of your various pizza spots? Like, this is just giving me really McAfeean vibes, blah, blah, blah. Don't hear back from Steve, order the pizza, play some cornhole, put on some bug spray, you know, have wine in a little plastic cup, having a great time, great smells, great vibes, string lights, just, just happy jamboree situation and started to chat with the proprietor. And I was like, where, how long have you been here? And he was like, oh, just a year. We used to be in Ghent. And I was like, hmm, mm -hmm. okay. I was like, do, <laughs> do, 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 have you ever been like, it's kind of a random question, but do you have any like podcasting fans? <laughs> and he was like, well, I was like on a podcast once to talk about pizza. And he's like, oh, and there's this, uh, there's this like slate culture. I was like, that's, that's me. I thought that's my show. You must be talking about Steve. He's like, oh yeah, Metcalf. They were like big supporters in the pandemic. We made them pie. There was always a Metcalf order every week. Anyway. I was right. It was one of your pizza brigadoons. I stumbled upon it. I don't even know if it's still there. I, I, it felt like magic, and the pizza was delicious. <laughs> Although, frankly, mine was delivered while I was, like, happily chatting with the guy. Um, and so I ate it slightly colder than would be optimal, but it was excellent. Um, anyway, Hilltop Hot Pies. Now it's uh, just west of Great Barrington in Massachusetts, and you can go check it out if, in fact, it's not a pizza dune. Pizza dune. It's not pizza. Well, it is and isn't pizza dune. It's, it's, I'm just so... Happy for him. He was doing a truck, and he was popping up at a farm, uh, and always talking about bricks and mortar, and you and, and attaching it to a farm because he's, he's from a farm family in the Berkshires. Raffi, I'm just so glad that he got his joint. Uh, that's a cool building too. I know that building. So yeah, definitely, I'm going to be heading there, and people should go. All right. Well, this week I'm endorsing a really I thought remarkable piece of journalism in the um, Sunday Times magazine. 
It was in the uh, August 23rd issue. It's called The Inheritance Case That Could Unravel an Art Dynasty. It's by Rachel Corbett. And, you know, it pairs beautifully with the Gagosian piece that was in The New Yorker by Patrick Radden Keefe that came out a few weeks ago um, in just laying bare what a Byzantine series of shell companies, um, rigged prices, fake bids, you know, weird art depots in like Geneva and other far-flung parts of the world where paintings that deserve to be seen are sequestered in vaults, tax evasion scams, the art world is. And the occasion for this piece is a widow of the Wildenstein, the famed Wildenstein family, for example, of the Pace Wildenstein Gallery in New York City, uh, has been shadily disinherited and is suing to get her, was suing, she's now deceased, to get her rightful portion of the estate. In the process of which she enlists a French attorney uh, who begins to fight on her behalf and uncover the sheer amount of skullduggery that's going on with this family that's been an effectively a, a one-family art empire for the better part of a century. And the French government finally got involved because of the sheer gigantic sums of money that were being hidden from their tax collectors. And what you get is this remarkable portrait of the widow, remarkable portrait of this heroic lawyer, combined with this insane synoptic, like sprawling, but also sort of beautifully synthetic portrait of um, the Wildenstein Empire, how far flung it is, uh, you know, how rich the trove is that they're hiding in some sense of this art, um, and how corrupt the art world is, and how it became an insider's game for the ultra, ultra, ultra rich, who mostly manipulate art as the little pea under the shells in a gigantic financial shell game. It's a, it's a remarkable piece of journalism. It's called The Inheritance Case That Could Unravel an Art Dynasty by Rachel Corbett in the August 23rd New York Times Magazine. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.